Good morning. My name is Emily Phillips. I'll be reading our scripture passions for today. It is Acts chapter 14, the whole chapter. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men, of like nature with you. And we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Emily, for reading our our scripture this morning. Um, Before we uh, dive into the sermon, I just want to say a brief word um, about our Grace and Race event that's coming up um, this Wednesday and the following Wednesday. Um, And so what we are, this event is uh, designed for it to be a chance really for our church to to come together and to talk about something that um, I'm sure that we hear a lot, of, uh, we hear talked about a lot in our culture today, and that's the issue of race. And we want to create a space in our church 
for us to talk about that, to stop and slow down for two nights and actually consider what the Bible says about issues of race in our current day. And so I hope that you would join us for that. It's going to be from 7 to 9 this coming Wednesday and the following Wednesday. If you're not able to join us in person, there will be a live stream as well. And so I would encourage you to join in that conversation with us. And let's all continue to learn together and strive together towards the unity that God has for his church. Well, let's turn now to Acts chapter 14. Now, in my opinion, uh, the best cultural moment of the lockdown quarantine period was the release of the documentary, The Last Dance. Uh, I don't know how many of you saw this, but um, it was a documentary about the 97-98 Chicago Bulls, uh, them at the last year of this storied dynasty led by Michael Jordan. And it gave this behind-the-scenes look at everything that happened during the course of that season. And one of my personal favorite uh, elements about that sports team was their uh, pump-up song that they would play as they announced the, announced the starting lineups to the Chicago Bulls. I, if you know what I'm talking about, then you probably already have chills on your arm, right? When they announced Dennis Rodman and Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan. Like that, that makes me want to run through a wall, right? And, uh, and, and I, like don't, I like sports, but I'm usually not that like hoorah sports guy. But with that song and that announcer and that team, I would run through a wall for sure. But this chapter in the book of Acts is like a great pump-up song for us as the church of Jesus Christ. It functions in a similar way. Now, maybe you might have walked into church today and it's another sleepy, mundane Sunday morning for you. Maybe church doesn't feel weighty or exciting this morning. Maybe you think about your day ahead and you're like, it will be a divine miracle if I make it to my pillow tonight, still following Jesus. But as we listen to this pump-up song this morning in the scriptures, I pray that we as a church would be re-energized and encouraged to persevere in our pursuit of God's mission for our lives and for the world. And as we study the scriptures this morning, the angels are watching us from the stands, and they are cheering us on. This is going to be great. Well, last week in Acts 13, we focused on how we need to keep the resurrected Christ and the work that he is doing in our day at the forefront of our minds and imaginations, that we need to keep the good news of Jesus at the front of our minds. And this morning, in Acts 14, we're going to see two ways that we will all be tempted to take our eyes off of the resurrected Jesus and what he is doing in our day. But we're also going to see two pathways that God provides for us, for us to persevere in our pursuit of Christ and following him and knowing him. So that first pathway to to perseverance that we're going to look at this morning is pleasure in the goodness of God. Pleasure in the goodness of God. Now we're going to hop into our text at verse 8 this morning. So before we do that, I want to back up and just provide some historical background and context for us. This passage can be a little bit confusing, right? Emily was a champ reading it. There's like 14 cities and they all have a weird pronunciation where they're all going. But if you remember last week, if you were with us, at the beginning of Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are sent out 
from this church at Antioch on what's normally called their first missionary journey. Uh, It's their missionary journey around to all of these towns in this region. And so they leave from Antioch and they set sail and they preach on a few, to a few towns on the island of Cyprus. And then they come up to Antioch Pisidia, which is where they were for the bulk of Acts 13 last week, where Paul gave that lengthy sermon. And then this week in chapter 14, they come to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, before backtracking all the way back through those towns and coming back to Antioch, which is where we finish with them at the end of chapter 14. That is their first missionary journey. So after fleeing potential violence in Iconium in verses 1 through 7, they come to the town of Lystra in verse 8. And when they arrive, the text says that Paul sees a man who was lame and he heals him. And it's very similar, the the recounting of this miracle is very similar to miracles done by Peter and Jesus, healing lame men. But the people of Lystra see this miracle, and they don't see the power of Jesus, but rather they conclude that Paul and Barnabas are incarnations of their gods, Hermes and Zeus. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Paul and Barnabas are thrust into the middle of a pagan worship service. Now, you, you might think, okay, that makes somewhat sense, but, but why, why did they conclude, because there was a miracle done among them, that these guys had to be incarnations of their gods? That seems like a big jump for them to take from just one miracle. Well, in uh, Ovid's Metamorphosis, which probably like three of you know what that is, but um, it's a classic series of Roman poems. Um, I know that some English teachers teach it. My wife knows what it is. Um, and uh, and that, that series of poems was written about 40 years prior to the events that take place here in Acts chapter 14. And there's one story in Ovid's Metamorphoses that's particularly interesting when it's viewed against this story. Uh, the gods came down in human form to a town in the region of Lystra. And all of the people there rejected the gods except for one couple. One couple welcomed the gods in and showed them hospitality. And as a result, those two people were favored and the rest of the town was judged. So think about it. If you are a citizen of Lystra and these guys come in out of nowhere that you don't know and they perform this miracle in front of you and that's in in the back of your mind, you're like, well, we don't want to be like those people. We need to do something about this. And so they start this worship service. They, They give them offerings for these supposed gods who became men. Now, I was talking uh, about this passage with a member of our church this week, and he mentioned that it reminded him of the scene from Star Wars, The Return of the Jedi, where the Ewoks hold a worship service for C-3PO the droid. So for those of you who don't know, Ewoks are these cute little fuzzy bear creatures, and C-3PO is this droid, and he's real shiny, and he comes to them, and they all think that he's some sort of a god, and then they start like bowing down to him and making this really silly noise. Um, so for the, some of you, that might be helpful. Uh, for some of you, that might not be. But I think we, we all have a tendency when we see kind of what we would deem as uncivilized religion, 
We have a tendency as modern Westerners to kind of hoist the same scorn upon that that we would, we would hoist towards C-3PO being worshipped by fuzzy bears. I think we, we treat it the same way. We laugh it off. We scorn at that. But you see, we do the very same thing. Blind human religion seeks to elevate individuals and things in the created realm to the place of God. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. In one sense, there's a sense in which you can say that these people at Lystra are more honest and closer to the truth than we are in the West. They understand that human life is inherently religious, that all people are meant to worship. You see, in our cool, detached, secular culture, we have found ways to mask this innate religious sense in all human beings, but it's still there if you have eyes to see it. So let me just show you what I mean. I'm going to give us kind of a test case in how this works in our culture. So take health and wellness, for example. Many people today in the West worship the God of appearance by obsessing over health and wellness. So let's just try to think about this in terms of religious language. Let's just think about this for a second, right? So many of us go to the temple of the gym in order to perform our ritual duty and offer ourselves as sacrifices, all the while gazing at ourselves through the religious icons of the mirrors that are set up all over the place, We seek the advice of our spiritual gurus, our health and fitness coaches. We only eat ceremonially clean foods and we ostracize all that is unclean. We cleanse our own personal spaces with the ritual washing of essential oils. (laughs) That one hits too close to home, I know. Uh, But we are as inherently religious and idolatrous as the people at Lystra. As theologian John Calvin said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. You see, when we give things in our world worship, these benign realities become idols, and they take our focus off of God's mission, that he would be praised and worshiped by all people in all the earth. And so how do Paul and Barnabas respond to this idolatrous worship service in their honor? Well, they do a few things. So the first thing they do in verse 14 is they tear their clothes, which was a sign in their day of mourning a blasphemy against God. And then in verse 15, they insist that they are of like nature with the people at Lystra. That's the exact language from the text. They said they are of like nature. And what they're they're trying to communicate is, hey, we are not gods like you think we are. We are creatures. We are merely creatures. You see, one fundamental aspect of all Christian teaching is that God alone is God and that nothing which God has made is God. There are two playing fields in reality. There's the playing field of the creature and there's the playing field of the creator. And what these men are, what Paul and Barnabas are saying is that, guys, we are not up there. We are here. We are creatures. And any time that we as creatures seek to take something in the created realm and treat it like the creator, that is what the Bible calls idolatry. Especially in Romans chapter 1 verse 25, we humans worship created things rather than the creator. Well, after Paul says this, then he challenges the people to turn from their false 
idols, their false gods, to the living and true God. And now you have to ask the question here, okay, so Paul's telling these people to turn. He's telling us to turn from our false gods and worship the living and true God. But what is it about the living and true God that compels us away from our idols to worship him? What is it that draws our praise to the living and true God? Well, Paul tells us this in in verse 17. If you would look at that with me, I'm going to read it again for us. It says, yet God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. See, the gods of the Greeks and Romans, gods like Hermes and Zeus, did things that are way too human for a god to do. They fought and killed one another. They were constantly deceiving one another. They tricked each other and stole their husbands and wives from each other. But what Paul is saying is there is a better God. And the living and true God has not left himself without a witness. Because the true God in his goodness made the whole world to testify to us that he exists and that he is so much better than our puny gods could ever be. The whole world sings of the goodness of who God is. And this good God provides for and gives his good gifts to all who live on his creation, even those who don't seek him. See, if you're here this morning with us at church and you don't believe in God, do you see what this passage is claiming? How can we claim that there is no evidence for God? It's literally everywhere. That's what this passage is saying. The very breath that you breathe in and out is a claim not only that God exists, but that he is kind to you. It's acknowledging God's goodness in what he has made that is a remedy for idolatry because it directs our gratitude and our inherent worship to where it should be. And in the process, we actually end up enjoying God's created world a heck of a lot more than if we were to treat it like it was ultimate. As Christians, our attitude toward God's creation should consist of what one Christian philosopher called the double movement. Okay, so here, this is what he means by that. That we as people look at created things and we see the inherent goodness in that thing, right? So every morning I wake up and the first thing I do is I go downstairs and I sit on the couch and I pet my chocolate lab named Luna, right? I see in Luna's face the goodness of God. But that is the double movement. You see, we have to not only see the inherent goodness in what God has created, but then take our gratitude and give it to God for what he has made. See, our culture, our secular culture only knows how to do one half of that equation. They see the goodness in the world, and then there's just a vague sense of gratitude, and it hits the ceiling. There's nowhere for that gratitude to go. But you see, we as Christians are invited deeper into the pleasures of this world and deeper into the pleasure and beauty of our creator God because we can see the goodness in it and give him worship and glory and gratitude for what he has made. And you see, as Christians, we often think that in order to persevere in our Christian lives, that we have to avoid the things of this world because we have a tendency to treat them as idols. 
So we say, well, we got to keep that thing at arm's length because I might, I might treat it as an idol. But what the truth of reality says, what this passage says is that the real pathway to perseverance in following God is to actually behold the goodness of God in the things he has made. It's not to back away from what God has made. It's to press deeper into what God has made, to see God revealed in it. And see, Christian, what this means for you is that you don't have to be afraid of enjoying what God has created and given you in his goodness, right? The world is a playground of pleasure in God. I think kids understand this so much better than we do as adults. Uh, we were just at the beach a couple weeks ago with, with my two-and-a-half-year-old nephew, and my father-in-law and I would take him on a bike ride every morning. And we were in South Carolina, so we were on the, the coast in South Carolina, so there were alligators. And so he would drive, we would drive on these pathways where we were staying and see these alligators in the pond, and every time we would pass an alligator, Quinn, my nephew, would go, wow. And we would pass another one, he'd go, wow. And it was every day, every time we passed one. I mean, for Quinn, the world is a playground of pleasure in God, right? Like he gets it. He sees the world and he's like, this is amazing. That's how we as Christians should be. Think about what God has given us, food and drink and mountain lakes and sex and meaningful work and our chocolate labs named Luna. They're all signposts to point to how good he is. He is so kind to us. See, Jesus dethrones our idols because Jesus is the true God who became man. And he sets himself, the true and living God, on the throne. And he wants your life to be an experience of his goodness and worship of who he is. That's good news to us. Well, that's the one pathway to perseverance that we see in this passage, to take pleasure in the goodness of God. The other one is to take pleasure in the sufferings of Christ. Pleasure in the sufferings of Christ. Now this peace at Lystra doesn't last very long. So after Paul and Barnabas talk these guys down off of a cliff and they stop trying to worship them, just shortly after this, trouble arises for Paul. Look with me at verse 19. It says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. We see here in this chapter why Paul says in Galatians that he bears on his body the marks of Jesus. The Jewish leaders track him down all the way from Iconium, right? So if, or Iconium and Antioch. So if you were to actually make that journey from Antioch to Iconium to Lystra, it's about 100 miles. It's a distance from here to Philly. So they tracked him down from here to Philly just to stone him and persecute him. That is the kind of opposition that Paul is up against here. And what is Paul's response to this? How does he respond to being opposed and persecuted and left for dead? Well, look with me at verses 20 to 23. This is where we start to hear the pump-up music going. We're starting to hear it in our ears a little bit. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. 
When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. See, Paul displays courage and an unwavering focus on Jesus and his church, despite the opposition. I mean, look at this. The guy gets left for dead outside of this city. And then the next day, he gets up after being beaten within an inch of his life. He gets up and starts a 60-mile journey to Derby so that he could keep preaching the gospel. And then after that, he says, let me go back through that same town that left me for dead, and I'm going to check on how that church is doing. And then I'm going to go to these other two towns that ran me out, and I'm going to check on them too. And I'm going to establish pastor elders at these churches. You see, despite this immense suffering, the Apostle Paul remains focused on Jesus and his church. Why would he do that? Why would you or I remain focused on Christ and his church in the face of that kind of persecution? Do you think we would? I don't think we would. I look at myself and I don't think I would. I value my own comfort way too much to stick my neck out there like that for Jesus' sake, especially when I just did it a day ago and it almost got me killed. I'm not going to wake up the next day and go to Derby. It's impossible for me, though, to believe that Paul and Barnabas walked to Derby the following day and they talked about how comfortable their beds were going to be when they got back to Antioch. Or they talked about how much they missed their home-cooked meals that they had at Antioch and that this was just one step closer to home for them. That's impossible, right? If they were focused on their own comfort and their warm beds and seeing their friends and family, they would have turned back a long time before this. So how does Paul stay so committed to Jesus and his church in the face of such opposition? How can we, in the midst of our love of our own comfort? Look with me, it'll be on the screen, at Luke chapter 6. This is a famous sermon of Jesus, and I think he gives us the answer to how we can display a similar type of perseverance in the midst of opposition. This is what he says. Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven. See, we all think that suffering is the opposite of true joy. But suffering for the kingdom of God is not a grit it out and bear it kind of suffering. See, suffering and sacrifice for the kingdom of God are joyous because we know for whom we suffer and toward what we are suffering. Let me say that again. Suffering and sacrifice for the kingdom of God are joyous because we know for whom we are suffering and toward what we are suffering. You see, Paul got up and kept preaching after nearly being beaten to death because Jesus was beaten to death out of love for him. 
Paul came back and preached again to the city of Lystra and checked on the church after being dragged out and stoned nearly to death because Jesus was dragged out of the city and crucified for him there. Jesus suffered and died the death we all deserved for all of our worship of things other than God and all the times that we have chosen the path of selfishness instead of sacrifice. Paul suffered and sacrificed for the one who suffered and sacrificed everything for him. He knew for whom he was suffering. And he also knew toward what end he was suffering, toward what goal he was suffering. You see, Jesus' suffering was the pathway to his glory. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus' motivation for enduring the horror of the crucifixion was that it was the joy that was set before him. You see, Jesus saw the joy of the day when he would be seated in power at the right hand of his father, gathering his people to himself. He saw that joy. And so he persevered through suffering, through sacrifice to that end. And we suffer in the same way. We sacrifice in the same way. See, in Acts 14, it says that we must suffer and sacrifice to enter the glory of the kingdom, a kingdom for which suffering brings joy even now. Look earlier in the book of Hebrews. This is going to be up on your screen. Look at how the church that was being written to, the book of Hebrews was written to, look how they responded to suffering and see how this is similar to Jesus. Hebrews 10 verse 34 says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. See, they said, you can take it away from me. They sacrificed for the sake of the kingdom because they knew the joy that was before them. They knew that they must suffer and sacrifice to enter the kingdom. See, ultimately, we can persevere through tribulation because of the pleasure that it is to know Jesus, the one for whom we suffer, and the kingdom which he has invited us into, the end toward which we suffer. You see, on the way to Derby, I bet Paul and Barnabas said to each other, not, man, I can't wait to get back to my bed, but I bet they said to each other, man, this sucks, and everything on my body hurts, but there's no place that I would rather be than suffering and sacrificing for the good of Jesus. Not because they were some kind of sadistic people that were glorying in their suffering, but because they knew Jesus and they knew what they were suffering toward. And here's where this all lands for us. You will never be able to stay faithful in service to Christ and his church, like Paul did, if you view suffering and loss for the sake of the kingdom as a chore rather than a privilege. You see, you'll never give up your time to serve in this local church with that view, especially when people betray you with hypocrisy or they get on your nerves. You'll never get back up again and go serve them. You'll never give of your time and possessions to serve the poor if you view it as a privilege instead of a pleasure. You'll never love people you don't really like, let alone your own enemies, if you view that as a chore rather than a pleasure. But when we, like Paul, can joyously lay aside our love of comfort because Jesus walked the path of tribulation before us, 
And he is with us in our own suffering, sacrifice, and service for his kingdom. And so as we see this example of sacrifice for the kingdom that Paul gives us here in this passage, when we see Jesus, who we suffer for, and when we see what we are suffering towards, how can our response to this not be the words of that famous hymn of Martin Luther? Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That is a better pump-up song than the Chicago Bulls theme song. That is a song that will make you persevere through this life, sacrificing for the sake of the kingdom of God, because Jesus has done the same for you. Would you pray with me, and I'll invite the band back up to lead us in a few songs. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize that there are ways in this life that we are tempted to not persevere in following you. Lord, we thank you for the ways in which you show us how we can continue to follow you when life is hard, when we're tempted to go our own way. Lord, that you have given us a witness of yourself and your goodness and that you have suffered on our behalf so that we can suffer and sacrifice the same thing for your kingdom's sake. Lord, help us to lay down our own love of comfort and to sacrifice in order to enter your kingdom, that we would be the kind of people that would be like Paul, so willing to let go of what we have on this earth for the sake of making you known to this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.